So this evening I'd like to um, I'd like to continue with the metta and and the eightfold path, and um, just see how how the how how the metta can be applied to the path and how the path can be applied to metta, and um, and and with that perhaps um, a little bit of how the <coughs> how the metta practice can be integrated into our daily lives. So uh, last night I spoke um, about um, the, uh, the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, right intention, and I, I spoke about metta and the, the two aspects of non-harming and non-ill will. And I, I had mentioned early in the talk that there was a third part that I would get back to. <laughs> So I'm going to get back to it now. And the, the, third, the third aspect that the Buddha spoke of uh, with regard to right intention <coughs> was, is the, the intention for renunciation. Renunciation in our culture is a hard sell. <laughs> It's not exactly encouraged. Um, our, um, our, our economic system, and to a large extent our political system, is dependent on exactly the opposite of renunciation. It's dependent on buying and using and acquiring and accumulating more and more. Renunciation has kind of two aspects to it. One aspect is, is related to this buying, accumulating, acquiring, and, um, and I'll come back to that. <laughs> the, other, the other aspect of it is renunciation in the sense of not clinging. Renunciation in the sense of just releasing, releasing the grip, not holding on. And and that, that, that not holding on and that, that releasing the grip, um, the, the, the releasing, it's, um, we, when, we, when we hear about letting go or releasing, the, the thoughts generally turn to, well, how do I do that? How do I let go? We can, we can see, at times we can see where we're, we're holding on to something and it's causing dukkha. In that holding, there's there's dukkha, and then we say, "Oh, if I could just let go of this, I just know if I could let go of this, and and what you know, whatever it is, whether it's all the stuff that's accumulating in your basement or in your garage, or whether it's uh, a, a job that you really don't like, or whether it's um, uh, a relationship that you're not happy in, or whatever it is, or whether it's um, uh, a thought that's just going round and round in the mind, you recognize that there's dukkha in this, in this holding, and then it's, how can I let go? I, if I could just let go, but how do I do that? And the, the, the difficulty with this is that when, when, we, when, we, when we think, how can I let go of this, what we're generally thinking of underneath that, what 
what seems to be underneath that for the most part is how can I get rid of this? How can I get rid of whatever it is? And and it's it's really helpful to 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 recognize that the the releasing, the letting go doesn't always have to mean getting rid of. Okay? It's more of a an emotional, psychological holding on to. And that 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 kind of releasing, that that psychological, emotional releasing, generally it's not something that we can do. It's not a doing. It's generally what happens when we really get that by holding, there's dukkha. It's, it's, it's making the leap from the first noble truth to the second noble truth of realizing that the clinging and the craving, that is the dukkha. And then when that's really deeply understood, the releasing happens. The releasing happens, and and it's um, and and the, the 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 releasing the releasing happens. So when we really get that thinking causes dukkha, and the the Buddha we call the, we call this meditation insight meditation, and so the the Buddha referred to and taught and encouraged the exploration and understanding of three critical insights. Three insights that contribute to and allow for and support the releasing to happen. And one of these is the, the, the deep knowing and understanding that things change. The fact of impermanence. And, and, and to, to, to really know impermanence is to know that we can't cling. It's to know that clinging inevitably will create dukkha because whatever it is we're clinging to will change. And if we're trying to keep it and hold on to it, we're struggling, we're fighting against the natural change. And so, so the, the understanding of, of change, of impermanence, becomes um, a key for the releasing to happen. Second, I'm just going to go through these very briefly because most of you have heard this and many of you could easily give a talk on it. Uh, the, second, the second one is, is knowing that, and it's very much related to the impermanence, but knowing that things are unreliable. We can't depend on things to last forever and keep giving us whatever satisfaction we get from them. Things are unreliable. And when we, when we really understand that, when we really get that, yes, these things are unreliable, again, we can just, oh, okay. There can be just that, just that releasing. And again, it doesn't mean getting rid of it necessarily. So we can still use the things, but not have that attachment. So, so when they change, 
when something breaks down, falls apart, gets stolen, (laughs) whatever happens to it, we know, ah, yes, of course, it changes, it's unreliable. And so there's, there can be that releasing that comes from knowing that unreliability. And the third, the third insight is, is the most difficult one, but maybe the most important. And, and it's, it's the understanding that everything is interconnected. Everything affects everything else. We're all connected. And our actions affect everyone else. Our speech affects everyone else. Our thoughts have, have effects. And everything is all, in, it's all interconnected. Everything affects everything else. And to really know this, to really deeply understand this, tells us that we don't need to hold on to things. We don't need to cling. It's not only that we can't cling because things are impermanent and unreliable, and things are impermanent, but we don't need to because it's all interconnected. And, 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 and things are, and everything appears as it is and exists as it is because there are certain conditions that allow it to be that way. And these conditions keep changing, and so the things keep changing dependent on the conditions, and it's all interconnected. And to really deeply know that, we come to know that we don't need to hold on, and we don't need to get rid of, we don't need to push away. So these, these three insights are really key for the, the, the liberation of mind, heart, body. The liberation, the freedom, the freeing that comes with that ha. Ah. Okay, and this is, this is the renunciation, this ha, ah, this, this releasing that, that grip on whatever is being gripped. Okay, now, to come back to the other, <laughs> the other aspect of renunciation. The other aspect of renunciation, which is equally important, and it's the one that's the much harder sell, and that's the renunciation that is not necessarily getting rid of, although that may be a part of it, but it's more questioning the acquiring and the accumulating. Renunciation is to live more simply. It's to give attention to and to consider, what do I really need? It's to give attention to this thing, whatever it is that I'm buying or getting or acquiring in in some way, What's its interconnectedness with the world? By buying and using this this thing, how is that affecting me and how is it affecting the world? How much oil and water and other natural resources 
went into producing this object. How much energy and resources went into transporting it? How far was it transported to get here, to get to me? How much resources are being used each time I use this object? So renunciation is a process of, of, of examining all of this and considering all of this and, and seeing what do I really need, what can I do without. When we start looking at it in this way, we see how all these things, and, and we're seeing it more and more clearly, the impact of these things of the production, the transportation, and the use of all these objects, how it's harming the earth, the environment. And the more we harm the earth and the environment, the more we're harming ourselves. And science is telling us more and more clearly and with more and more convincing argument that really the only way to turn this around, the climate change, the destruction of the earth, the only way to turn it around is by renunciation, by using less. This is metta. This is the practice of metta. This is bringing metta to ourselves and bringing metta to others and bringing metta to the earth. When we're doing the walking meditation, we gave the instructions as the foot comes down just to silently say something like, may you be safe or may you be protected or may you be healed. Whatever you would like to wish for the earth. And... You know, we can, we can say that all we want, but the only way the earth is going to be saved or healed is if each one of us, each one of us cultivates the metta within ourselves and then takes action on that. This is a huge way that we can bring metta into our lives. And, and it, and it, and it easily happens. We look around in the world and there is so much dukkha in this world. And it's very easy to be overwhelmed by it. And it's very easy to think, whatever I do, what difference is it going to make? And the next step from that is, so why bother doing anything? But everything is interconnected. Every little thing we do has effects. And much of the time, we don't even know what the effect is. And sometimes the effect doesn't show for years. You know, even, even, even now, if, if, if every one of us stopped putting any carbon whatsoever into the atmosphere it would take at least 50 years for that to start showing in the environment. Now to think that way, it's overwhelming. So what's the point? 
But if we think in terms of our children and our grandchildren who are going to be around 50 years from now, then we see, yes, it does make a difference. The littlest step can make a huge difference. It's kind of like in the, in the, in the, in the economics world, they say that you, know, you, you put money into your RSP and it multiplies, <laughs> the multiplier effect. You know, even though the interest they're giving is less than the inflation rate, <laughs> it's it's they, they speak of this multiplier effect and, and try to convince you that you're going to get ahead. <laughs> but it's the same with with these little steps. You know, these little steps of renunciation. There's a multiplier effect with them. And so, so for this reason alone, I would say, cultivating metta is critical. The, um, the, third, the, the third of the Eightfold Path is right speech. And I, and I want to follow along a little bit from the renunciation and go on to the next one, which is right action. And so, so obviously right action is is related to the the intention, the non-harming. You know, all of our actions, any action, there has to be some kind of intention before we take an action. Most of the time we're probably not aware of the intention. But there is something going on in here somewhere that's that's propelling us to take the action. With, with, the, with the metta practice, so the metta practice, as I said last night, the metta, the metta practice is, is this selfless wish for non-harming. And, and, and through, the, through the metta practice, through cultivating that wish, through cultivating that wish, what, what can happen and what hopefully does happen is we get to the point where we are compelled to take action. We get to the point where it's just not enough to just sit here and, and, and feel this metta and be with this metta. The metta calls for action. And the action, hopefully the action and the skillful action and the right action in the Eightfold Path is compassionate action. So metta is the wish for well-being and compassion is the action, skillful action, in response to dukkha. Compassion is skillful action in response to dukkha. And so, so we cultivate this wish for well-being and then we see where there isn't well-being, where there's dukkha. And the, the, the metta has the power to, it, it empowers us. The metta empowers us to take action. And so we act out of compassion. Compassion for the, 
for the, because of based on knowing and feeling the dukkha. What 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 commonly happens <coughs> with with compassion is that we start giving and giving and giving and being compassionate here and being compassionate there and 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 dukkha calls us here so we act and dukkha calls us here and we act and how many of us have experienced compassion burnout <laughs> and i think the the reason one of, one of the one of the main reasons for compassionate burnout is because compassion has to be balanced with wisdom. Compassion has to be balanced with wisdom. And one of the wisdoms is knowing this interconnectedness. Knowing this interconnectedness that, you know, if I burn out, how am I going to help anyone? How can I how can I respond to the dukkha of others if I'm totally burned out? When we when we use the phrase "may all beings," it's really important to remember that all beings includes ourselves. We're not separate from all beings. Isn't just those beings out there. It's all beings. Because we're all interconnected. And in that interconnectedness, in that interconnectedness, there's, there's giving and receiving. And it's really important, it's really important that we give, but it's important that we also be able to receive. How many... How many find that metta for oneself is more difficult than metta for someone else? Nobody. Oh, great. No. Oh, there's hands going up now. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, uh, I think it's a, a cultural conditioning. It's harder to receive than to give. But it's, it's, it's critical. And this, um, it, it, to a certain extent, this leads into the next, the next one, which is right livelihood, right livelihood, and and often it's in our livelihood where we experience the compassionate burnout. And it's it's really important to examine livelihood, and our 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 own livelihood and our relation to livelihood. And I've known so many people who have being in jobs that they knew were in no way nourishing them. We're not feeding them in any way. There was, it was just all giving and nothing was being received. Very out of balance. It's really important in our livelihood to, to examine this. If we're burning out, what will nourish me? To so start questioning, what will nourish me? 
and to recognize the need for some kind of nourishment. And the nourishment may not come exactly from the job, but there, not, there has to be nourishment from somewhere. We can't just keep turning up metta and compassion. It has to be balanced by wisdom. With livelihood, um, livelihood could easily be a whole talk. (laughs) Um, It's such a huge issue for so many people. My, My first career was uh, as a pharmacist. And um, my first day on the job as an apprentice, my preceptor said to me, just remember one thing. Every single person who walks in that door is suffering. And that was, wow. (laughs) That was quite something to think that everyone who walks in that door is suffering. And, and, and it, 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 I, it, I have to say, it took me far too many years to really get the implications of that. You know, and, and to, to, to know that, to really, to really get that we're all in suffering together. We're all in dukkha together. And just as I want to be free from dukkha, everyone else wants to be free from dukkha. And to and to and to to really get that when we when we really understand that everyone who we come into contact with is experiencing dukkha in some form. You know, there's there's different forms, there's certainly different degrees. but to recognize that everyone is experiencing dukkha and everyone wants to be free from dukkha. And so often, our ways of being free from dukkha are so unskillful. (laughs) And we create more dukkha for ourselves and for others. But everyone experiences dukkha, we all experience. And to really get that, just that in itself, hopefully will bring up some metta and some compassion or at least an understanding of the need for, the importance of metta and compassion. In our livelihoods, can we remember that? You know, can we, can we, can we recognize that any, everyone who we're dealing with in the course of our livelihood is experiencing dukkha in some form and to some degree. And knowing that, can we, can we kind of see through or go through or go beyond our own dukkha, not to deny it or suppress it, but just to be able to move through that just in that moment and know that other person is in dukkha and be able to, coming back to right speech, speech, speak kindly. Speak not out of frustration or anger or disappointment or grief, 
speak from a place of metta, to speak with kindness for that person. It doesn't mean never being. It doesn't mean we should, as good Buddhists, we should never be angry or or frustrated or disappointed or upset. It doesn't mean that. These emotions all arise depending on the right conditions. Under certain conditions, they arise. But can can we open to that in metta in a way that allows us to speak and to act with kindness, with friendliness, with metta, with compassion. This is the challenge. The the Dalai Lama, I don't know if he still says it, but the Dalai Lama used to say, People, he, he was asked if he, if he ever gets angry and, and like shouts at people or yells at people. And he said, sometimes I have to pretend I'm angry. <laughs> and I think, I think to pretend you're angry really requires, uh, it, it requires a real awareness of, a real inner awareness and a real, a real sensitivity and, and, a, and a real skillfulness in relating to oneself in that moment and in relating to the other person. But it, I think it can be a very skillful thing to pretend you're angry. <laughs> but to, to, to feel anger and to react to that just in an outburst of speech or an outburst of action all it's going to do is bring back more anger. It's going to create more of a feeling of separation rather than allowing for the connection. So again, as Molly mentioned this morning, it doesn't mean, none of this means passivity. It requires action, but can we act from a place of wisdom and compassion in balance? And that balance, again, involves the interconnectedness, the giving and the receiving. So we've got intention, speech, action, action, livelihood, and then the next one is right effort, right effort. Effort, effort, the Buddha presented as having four parts. And the four parts are the cultivation is one, and the sustaining is two of that which is wholesome. And the other two parts are the preventing the arising and the abandoning of that which is unwholesome. And I think we can 
sum all this up by saying that right action is action for non-harming. It's action for non-harming. And if we consider what's wholesome and what's non-harming, the M word, <laughs> metta, metta. So I, I, I would say that right, right effort, right effort is very much about cultivating and sustaining metta. Metta being the, as, as I mentioned last night, the, the antidote to anger and hatred and ill will. Metta being the, the quality of heart-mind that allows us to connect, that allows us to know our connection, that allows us to be steady with, to be steady with whatever is presenting to us. So right effort, very much about metta. And metta very much about right effort. And then there's right mindfulness. Right mindfulness. And I think, I think by now in this retreat we can see the relationship between mindfulness and metta. <clears throat> mindfulness and metta. You know, the, the, the cultivation of metta really requires a lot of mindfulness. And, and metta, in turn, supports the mindfulness. So, so the mindfulness allows us to see, to recognize what's happening in the moment. Mindfulness allows us to, to know where there's dukkha, where there's the absence of dukkha. Mindfulness allows us to know what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. And mindfulness tells us when, mindfulness shows us when there's dukkha, when we're in struggle, when we're in conflict. And so mindfulness shows us, it shows us, as I mentioned last night too, mindfulness tells us when the hindrances are present. And so, so mind, mindfulness reveals to us when there's a need for cultivating metta. So mindfulness supports the cultivation of metta. In the presence of metta, in the presence of metta, metta has that quality, has the qualities of, of spaciousness, of friendliness, of... Um, of, of gentleness, of kindness, and, and all of these qualities support us in staying present with what is, which supports the mindfulness, which allows us to be, it's, it's like a, a spiral. You know, the, the mindfulness supports the metta, and then the metta allows us to stay more present with whatever is happening. And that produces more mindfulness, more metta, and it just spirals. 
So right mindfulness and metta, very much interconnected, very much dependent on one another. And then last night I spoke about right concentration and how, how metta is used as a, as a concentration practice and how, how metta, how metta the, 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 the cultivation, the sustaining of metta brings with it a kind of joy that allows for, that allows for concentration. And it's um, and th- this this joy this this joy of this joy of metta, it's it's not it's not the kind of joy we get that's dependent on an object. It's not the kind of joy that's dependent on a relationship or a, a new car <laughs> or um, a new computer or um, uh, a more comfortable zafu. Or anything like that, or it's not dependent on um, oh sitting and being mindful of ten breaths in a row. Um, all of these things can bring a kind of joy, but it's, it's it's joy on a different level that comes with metta, and and it's a joy that still allows for and can be there even in the presence of difficulty. It's a spaciousness that allows for, and in that spaciousness, there's a there, there's a lightness, and that's that's the that's the joy of the joy of metta that supports right concentration. And then the um, I haven't mentioned the first of the eightfold path, so the. So we go through the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and they kind of cycle around. So with, with all of these as conditions, all of these all of these factors, you know, we 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 get a balance. There's you know, we're 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 exploring our right livelihood, our right speech, our right action, our right and it's not a, a step-by-step thing where you do this one and you start with right speech. Oh, check that one off. I've got that one. Now I'll move on to right action. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, I got that one down now. I'm al- almost <laughs> close enough. Check that one off. And it's a, they they all they all work together, and 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 ultimately ultimately to explore any one of them is to explore all of them. Because they are all interconnected, but when the when 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 the eightfold path is being explored in this way, and particularly when metta is being brought in, I think it kind of cycles around and and brings us to the first one, which is where we actually start. But the first one is is the understanding of the four noble truths, understanding of dukkha, and the cause of dukkha. And the ending of dukkha. And and it and it and it starts. It starts. It's. it's I, I always puzzled over. You know why isn't that the last one? Why isn't concentration first? <laughs> why why is why isn't that the last? But it's that. What what I've come to is that it's. 
the right understanding is first because at some level, why would we be doing this if we didn't have some idea or understanding of dukkha and some, some glimpse of the possibility, at least, of its ending? If we knew dukkha and thought it's totally hopeless, there's absolutely no way of ending it, why would we do this? And yet here we all are, three days later, still here. <laughs> the wisdom is here. The wisdom is here. We, we, have, we have the wisdom. We have the wisdom. And, and, and the, the practice, whether it's the, the insight practice, the vipassana practice, or the, the metta practice, in a way, is, is to remove the veils, to, to, to break up the clouds, to, to dispel the hindrances, to dispel the, the to, to, to free ourselves from the conditionings that obstruct the conditionings of I need more, I need this, I need that. The conditionings of acquiring, accumulating, getting, keeping, holding on to, getting rid of. The conditioning of us and them, the good guys and the bad guys, the friends and the enemies. Free ourselves from these conditionings and really allow the wisdom to show. And the wisdom shows and balances, and balances the metta and the compassion. And so we can, we can act in this world not out of anger, frustration, greed, hatred, delusion, ignorance. But we can act from this, this wisdom, this wisdom of knowing interconnectedness and this wisdom of knowing that acting out of anger will in all likelihood generate more anger. Acting in greed will in all likelihood generate more greed. And so the, the, the eightfold path and and the and, and 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 really understanding the role of metta in the eightfold path is a path to this liberation. It's a path to to being and acting in the world in a way that is skillful, that's beneficial, that's wholesome. And that contributes to non-harming and non-ill will. It contributes to contributes to freedom and peace for everyone. 
So again, real encouragement, real encouragement to, to, to really cultivate the metta and to cultivate the wisdom so that we can, we can use that, let that, let that energy of the metta flow into wise compassion, skillful compassion, action to, to end not just our own suffering, not just our own dukkha, but all dukkha, because we're all in this together. So let's sit quietly for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.